John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. It's God's word. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. Father, have one more time as we come before your word, we pray that it would not be dry and static, that we would not be blind to it, but that it would be alive, that we would see it for all of its majesty, for all of its grandeur. Pray for these things in the name of your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. We are all looking for glory. We are all looking for glory. I know that we live in what is sometimes called a secular world, and uh, it seems like uh, religion has retreated and spirituality has retreated from the center stage, but we are all looking for glory. The book of Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity into the hearts of men. And to demonstrate that, I'll just ask a simple question. Um, How many of your friends, you don't have to raise hands, but how many of your friends who would say that they're agnostic or atheist um, would, would tell you that they don't believe in anything supernatural at all? Um, even for those, it's so hard today to find a true atheist because even those who, who would say that they're not Christian, who don't believe in the gospel, who don't believe in Christ would say, but there's still things that science can't explain. There's still things that reason can't explain. There's still something transcendent behind the universe. There's still something out there. And I, and I believe most people live most of their lives looking for the glory looking for the glory in, in work, in nature, in their families. They're, they're looking to get an edge of the transcendent. They're looking to get a glimpse of, of the glory. And as Christians, we would say that the God has shown His glory, and the glory is found in the Son. And so today, I, I want to talk about um, these, these five verses here, 14 through 18, and what they tell us about the glory of God. And so um, first we're going to see the witnesses to his glory, the witnesses to his glory, and then second we're going to see the revelation of his glory. So the witnesses of his, to his glory and the revelation of his glory. And there's my outline. I've just got to get that out of the way up front because I don't all stick to it. Um, but we're going to see four witnesses to his glory, and then we're going to see how this, these short five verses lay the framework for how God reveals his glory in the Gospel of John. So four, four witnesses to his glory. And number one, John the Baptist. We see this in verse 15. It says, John bore witness about him and cried out. Now, John the Baptist is different than the author of the Gospel of John. So the author of the Gospel of John is John the Apostle, the son of Zebedee, one of the sons of thunder. Um, and John the Baptist is a guy who dresses in camel hair and eats uh, locusts dipped in honey. Two different people, different, different people. But John the Apostle, the son of Zebedee, is the disciple of John the Baptist. So John knew John, and the other John also knew John. They were, they were friends. And John the, the Apostle, who wrote the Gospel of John, was a disciple of John the Baptist. And so when John tells us about John, he is saying, I know who I'm talking about. 
This is, I, I'm a witness. I, I've seen him. I know him. He was my mentor. He was my disciple. And let me tell you the thing that animated John's life. The thing that John the Baptist gave his life to doing was to bear witness about the light. Uh, John, John is very clear that he is not the light. In fact, he said, this was he, so speaking of Christ, speaking of the word, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And, and this very brief statement, we see that John uh, has two things that he confesses about Christ, two things that he knows about Christ. Sometimes we wonder, well, how much did, the old, did they know before Christ was died and rose again? Well, he knows at least two things. One, that this Jesus, this word that he has seen, existed before creation. That he was, in John's words, in the beginning. And so he was preexistent, that he had this glory before all time. In fact, uh, that's an important point in the Gospel of John. We'll see later, in 10 years when I get to chapter 17, that it says, uh, in John seventeen five, Jesus says, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so the word existed before time. He possessed the glory of God before time. He was before time. And, and secondly, what John knows about the word is that the word is a bigger deal than him. So not only was he before him, but he's also superior to him. Not only was he his predecessor, he's also his Lord. He's also above him. He's more important than him. And so John, we were told last week, was sent by God to bear witness about this one who existed before time and who exists in time as Lord. And that's John's witness. And I would just like to point out about John. John is the uh, archetypal, he's the example for Christian leaders other than Christ. Because the, the most fundamental character trait we see about John the Baptist, in the Gospel of John at least, is his humility. But John says, he must increase, I, I must decrease. More of him, less of me. John sent over his ministry, all, all of his disciples, he said, go follow Jesus. And for Christian leaders, this is what we should expect of Christian leaders. Listen, I don't want any of you to be my disciples, I want you to be Jesus' disciples. This is what Christian leaders should be like, is that they should tell people about the light and witness to the light and not witness to themselves. I would just like to point out that is very contrary to how we see a lot of other leaders operating and other spheres of life. They're trying to uh, they're trying to make their own little kingdoms, their own little fiefdoms, their own little disciples, but the invitation that Jesus extends through John is you can be part of a bigger story. You just have to be willing to not be the point of the story. You can be part of a bigger story. You just have to be willing to let me be the center. So the first witness is John the Baptist. The second witness, the second witness is Moses. It says, for the law was given through Moses. Now, some people will think that the New Testament is anti the Old Testament, but that's actually not true. John actually calls Moses' law, the, the, the first five books of the Bible, a gift. 
was a gift of God. John has high regard for the first five books of the Bible. In fact, as we'll see today and we'll see throughout our time in the Gospel of John, uh, John is well acquainted with the first five books. He holds them highly. He reads them. There's scripture to them. He loves them. He's memorized parts of them. And so John is not opposed to the first five books of the Bible. John's not opposed to Moses. And yet John believes that all the, the works of Moses were meant to point forward to Christ. In fact, in John's Gospel, he, he quotes Jesus as saying, Moses wrote about me. That the whole Old Testament is leading up to the person of Christ. And Moses, when he was writing the first five books of the Bible, was, even before Christ came, was witnessing to Christ, was witnessing to the one who was to come. Moses is a witness about the Word, about Jesus, about the light and the life. Moses himself exists to make much of Christ. And it's worth, I was just reading Exodus this morning. It's worth quoting or worth thinking about that that's how we should read the Old Testament. We're walking through the Old Testament. We should be thinking, how does this point us forward to the new? How does the burning bush and the angel that uh, Joshua sees before Jericho and how does the vision of Isaiah and Isaiah 6, how does that point us forward to the New Testament? Thankfully, the New Testament um, in general, and John in particular, gives us a ton of ways to make sense of that. We'll talk about those as we're going on, but that is kind of how we ought to read the New Test- The Old Testament is as a witness to Christ before Christ. It's often said that the, the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed, and the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. That The whole New Testament is meant to build up to the stunning revelation of Christ. There's also two more witnesses in these five verses, two more witnesses. Um, that are a little bit more implicit. The first is the author of the gospel, John himself, where he says in verse 14, we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. John himself is presenting this as his, as his testimony. So not only does John the Baptist have testimony, not only does Moses have testimony, but John says, I have testimony. And and John himself, as he's working his way through the story of Jesus, is going to again and again quote eyewitness testimony. Can you just imagine John the Baptist, or John the Apostle, sorry, as he's getting ready to write the Gospel of John, he sits down with Mary, the mother of Jesus. And he sits down with the woman at the well. And he, he sits down with Nicodemus, who tradition tells us would later give his life for the cause of Christ. And he tells them, he asks, what, what did you see? And they said, we have seen his glory. But the Gospel of John is a a record of eyewitness testimony about Christ. Uh, It used to be thought sometimes amongst higher critics that the Gospel of John uh, was presenting a theological view, not an eyewitness testimony view. But that view has been discredited today because even uh, because of the writings of a man named Richard Baucom, even people who aren't necessarily uh, what we would call evangelical, but they'd say, no, John is at least trying to present eyewitness testimony. Richard Bauckham, in his excellent book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, spends 400, 500 pages making this point. And if you want to know what's the big idea of that book, so you don't have to read four or 500 pages, it's that. Jesus is eyewitness to in the Gospels. The four Gospels, and John in particular, are giving us, presenting for us, the eyewitness testimony of those who saw it. Maybe you would say, well, I, I can't trust that. I can't trust eyewitness testimony. I, I got to know it for myself. I can't, I can't trust eyewitness testimony. I would just ask, how many things in your life do you depend on the knowledge that somebody else has given to you? 
How many things in your life do you, have you actually figured out? So I, I, this is the example I always use. Um, when I was getting ready for this sermon, I sat down with, with my computer and I punched some keys and up came data that kind of fit itself and kind of worked itself in the sermon. I don't know how that works. I don't know why a computer works. I went to the wrong kind of college for that. I did not know. I don't know what it is that when I press those buttons that it comes up and I just ones and zeros, but I don't understand that. I just, I know that it does. And I trust that it does because it does. And, and, and I've seen it to be true. And I only know that because I, I trust somebody's witness to me. How many of us, when we get into our car, are trusting that, yes, the, when I turn the ignition, it will actually turn on. And when I press the gas, it won't blow up in front of me. We're trusting the witness of the others. I mean, how many things in your life do you think you actually figured out on your own? I can tell you the answer to that. None. We depend on eyewitness testimony for every piece of knowledge that we have. Why would we think it's any different when it comes to Christ? And John is presenting his gospel as eyewitness testimony. When he says, we have seen his glory, it's not just a flourish. of It's not just a style of writing. He's saying, I was there. And not only was I there, but I talked to a bunch of other people who were there. And they will tell you, we have seen his glory. So, John the Baptist is um, a witness. Moses is a witness. John the Apostle and all the other eyewitness accounts in the Gospel of John are witnesses to his glory. And we're also witnesses to his glory. We're also witnesses to his glory. Remember, we said that the purpose of the Gospel of John was it was written so that you might believe. And and so as we take John the Baptist, and as we take Moses, and as we take John the Apostle at their word, and we trust their testimony, and we taste and we see that it is good, we too become witnesses to his glory. As we've seen the difference that he can make in our lives, and we've seen the glory of the revelation of Christ, and we've, we've seen all that he's done in our lives, how he's made things that are broken new, and how he's healed what was ill, and how he has made us whole, and how he's forgiven us for our sins, we too become witnesses of his glory. And it's worth asking this morning, are you a witness of that glory? Does that describe your experience of Christ, that you've seen him and you've beheld him and you've come to acknowledge him? It's very easy. I was reading a Tim Keller book this, this week, and he said, uh, there are many who've professed to be forgiven who have yet to be transformed by it. It's very easy to believe that we have seen the glory, but it's a whole other thing to actually see the glory, to actually have the scales removed from our eyes. Maybe if you're wondering this morning, well, I don't know. What does that glory look like? Well, that's the next point in my outline. So what is the revelation of his glory? What, how does his glory get revealed in these first five verses? Let me, let me pull out a couple things that we've already seen. So John has already told us that he existed before time began. So he possessed that glory before time began. So he was pre-existent. He had access to all of what it means to be God before eternity started. So his glory is something that doesn't come into existence. It's not like a light bulb that you turn on and off. His glory has always been there. It's just a glory that is now shine, that we now see. But he's had access to that glory from before time began. 
Two different times in this passage, most of your English translations probably say uh, the only son in verse 14 and verse 18, that he's the only son. How many of you have a King, good old King James version? Anybody here? I love, oh, God bless you, Alex. I love the King James Version. I'm not one of those people down on the King James Version. The King James Version gets this right. It's not the only son. It's actually the only begotten son. That's what this is saying, the only begotten son. In fact, verse 18 says, the only begotten God. It's the same word that comes from this verse that you all know from John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's important. It's important for John to highlight that, that there's, he's the only begotten God, that there's something unique about him because he has just told us in verse 13 that we can become children of God. And so John is trying to help us understand we become children of God. We share in the, 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 what it means to have God as our father, that we're, we're children of God and yet we are not the only begotten son. The only begotten son is of a different order, that he's higher than us, that he is of God, from God, and we are begotten of God, but we're still man. And the only begotten son is, the, 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 is of a whole different order. He's ontologically different. So we see that he, has dwelt, uh, he had the glory before time began, that he's the only begotten God and the only begotten son, and therefore he has access to the glory. And we see this, man, we probably have read verse 14 too many times to be appropriately stunned by it. It says in verse 14, the word became flesh. So remember that word that we talked about back in verses 1 through 5? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Remember how we talked about that? That's a quotation and a summary of of the creation theology in the Old Testament, how God created all things by the mouth of His Word. We saw that in Genesis 1 and Psalm 33. I know you all remember that, but just to jog my memory, what we are told is that same Word that brought all things into existence— that, that uh, was the power by which God created all things. That, that, that same word who was himself creator became creature. Who was himself God became man. And he didn't do that by losing his godness, by emptying himself of his godness. He didn't, he didn't lose that godness when he became man. He still had access to that godness, and he still had access to that humanity. He's both God and man. If you were to say, well, he's 50% God, 50% man, that would be wrong. If you were to say he's 75% God and 25% man, I'd say that's wrong. Or 75% man and 25% God. That's wrong. He's 100% God and 100% man. And you say, that doesn't make sense. I say, I went to the wrong kind of college for that. He is all God and he's all man. He's 100% God, 100% man. Everything that it means to be God, he is. And everything that it means to be man, he is. That he has both a divine and a human nature and he dwelt among us. So how does he show his glory? Well, he shows his glory in part by becoming man. And it says that he dwelt among us. And that word dwelt among us in verse 14 is is actually the word he tabernacled among us. And you see here that John is starting to draw analogies between this and those passages that we read earlier in Exodus 33 and 34. That just like in the Old Testament, when the glory of God comes down and it fills the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, 
so that only Moses can go in. And the glory of God dwells within the temple. So Christ, when he became man, the glory of God came down and it filled the temple. But it wasn't a building, it was his own flesh. It was his own flesh. And one of the major themes in the Gospel of John is simply that, that Jesus is the new temple. In fact, we'll see this in a couple weeks in the end of John 2. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. This is after he clears out the temple. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So just as in the Old Testament, when God's people built a tabernacle and the glory of God came down and filled the the tabernacle, so when God became man, when the Son of God became the Son of Man, when He took onto unto Himself human flesh, when He assumed our nature, the glory of God came down and dwelled with man. Unlike the tabernacle, where the glory of God would come up and down and it would leave, and after the tabernacle that wastes away, that the glory of God would go away. And unlike the temple, where the glory of God left in exile, the glory of God will never leave the new and greater temple that the incarnation will never be reversed, that God and man will never be parted again, that no matter where we go into exile, into darkness, into brokenness, the glory of God will not leave us. That's what he's saying, that it dwelt among us. And so this is part of the paradox of the Gospel of John. On the one hand, he has perfect intimacy with the Father, In fact, in verse 18, it says that he was at the Father's side or that he was leaning up against his bosom, that he was was intimate with him and had perfect communion with him, and yet at the same time, he has perfect communion with us. He comes and dwells among us, that he makes God known to us. He's both God and man. He's a perfect mediator, the only way by which we may come to the Father, which is why he says, that I am the way, the truth, and life. No one can come to the Father except through me because the glory of God has come into the new and greater temple. And this, by the way, is in lockstep with what the other gospel writers believe. So we see, for example, in the gospel of Luke and Luke 10, in that hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the, Father is ex- uh, who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son re- chooses to reveal him. And again, we see something very similar in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 11. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. That he is here in perfect lockstep with what the other gospel writers teach. And yet, that is not the fullness of the revelation of the glory of God in this uh, this this uh, section of scripture that John's actually pointing us to a greater revelation of God than even that a greater revelation of God even than that in his gospel and to understand that you have to see what he says when he says full of grace and truth two different times two different times in this 
um, in this section, we see this idea of full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. What, is, what does that mean? Now, now, sometimes when we hear that phrase, we, we're tempted to think, oh, he means that so just as Jesus treated all of us with grace and truth, so we should treat others with grace and truth. So just as God is gracious towards us and yet true, uh, so we should be gracious towards others and true. And I have no problem with treating people that way. I think that is a case of the right idea from the wrong text. Because that's not what this is talking about. I would never say don't treat others with grace and truth. But this has a deeper, richer, more textured and layered meaning. So grace and truth right here is actually, um, you have to understand that the Greek word truth or aletheia is translating the Hebrew word emet. If you've ever read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a character named Emet. So just think Emet from Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, from the, I guess, the seven, whatever. Anyways, so there's a, the Hebrew word Emet that is translated by the, the Greek word Eletheia. So where do you see Emet and graciousness? Where do you see God's, which is usually in English translated as faithfulness, where do you see his faithfulness, his trustworthiness, his truth used in Scripture in conjunction with this, with this word gracious? You actually see it in a passage that we've already read this morning in Exodus 34. We read that for our call to worship. But to understand Exodus 34, you've got to go to Exodus 33. To do Exodus 33, you've got to go to 32, 30. So we'll just start at the beginning. In the book of Exodus, it starts off, God's people are in exile. Uh, they're in exile in a different country for 400 years. They're in exile in the land of Egypt. And God hears their cries, uh, he, he listens to their complaint, and he raises up a leader, Moses. And by God's providence, Moses uh, it, it comes to the deserts of Midian, and at the deserts of Midian, he, he sees this burning bush, and, and that burning bush is on Mount Sinai. And so God, uh, in the burning bush, calls Moses to lead the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And so he sends him back, and he goes to uh, Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says... I'm okay. I'm, I'm going to pass on that. And so God uses 10 plagues to grip the fingers of Pharaoh off the people of Israel. So finally, of course, the last, the last uh, plague is to uh, the destroyer comes and he kills every firstborn and every family. And Pharaoh finally releases the people of Israel and they come up to the Red Sea. And there we're told that God parts the Red Sea. He splits it open and he, uh, the people of Israel come through and then the The Red Sea crashes down and destroys the Egyptians who are still chasing him. So God brings the Israelites across the Sinai Peninsula uh, through various toils and troubles. He brings them to the Sinai Peninsula to Mount Sinai, where God had shown himself to Moses in the burning bush before. So God has done all these miraculous saving works, some that we have barely even mentioned, like the fighting the Amalekites and providing bread and water in the desert. God has rescued them from Egypt. He's cut open the, the Red Sea. And then God, God has said, I've done all this for you, so I'm going to make a covenant for you. I will be for you. I'll be with you. And here's what you have to do in return. And, and God gave them out uh, the Ten Commandments. You should have no other gods before me. You should not make any graven images. You should honor the name of the Lord your God and keep it holy. You should take a Sabbath rest. You should honor your parents. You shouldn't murder. You shouldn't commit adultery. You shouldn't steal. You shouldn't lie. You shouldn't covet. And I only know that because, well, I do that with my son every night because he, he needs to know the law. Anyways, we, so God gives them this. And what does Israel say? Israel says, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That sounds very pious, doesn't it? Say, okay, Moses, go on up the mountain. Moses goes up on the mountain, and the Israelites look at one another. They say, 
You know where Moses went? I don't know. Do you know where Moses went? Hey, Aaron, I got an idea. Why don't you give us a God to worship? Because we don't know what happened to Moses. And so God, so of course, you all know the story. Moses creates a golden calf. And it says in Exodus 32 that, that the people uh, sacrificed the calf and then they rose up. They sat down to eat and then they rose up to play. And if you follow your way through that narrative in Exodus 32, you see that the people of God proceed to break every single one of the Ten Commandments. Every single one of the, just all the Lord has spoken, never mind. We'll, we'll, all the Lord has spoken, we did not do, right? And, and so every single one of the Ten Commandments is broken in, that, in just that brief little section there. And so God sends Moses down the mountain and God says to Moses, get them out of here. I do not want to see that. Just set, go conquer the land. You guys do your thing. We'll just part. And, and Moses comes back up the mountain. And Moses says, and we read this in Exodus 33, God, I, I don't want to go forward unless you're not there. Unless your presence is with us. And, and God relents and God says, okay, fine. My presence will go with you. Moses says, yeah, but I, I still don't want to go forward unless I know that I have your favor. And God says, you have my favor. You can go. And, God said, and Moses says, yeah, but God, I still don't want to go unless I can see your glory. And God says, Moses, that's the one thing I can't give you. I can't let you see my glory because man cannot see my glory and live. But here's what I'll do. I'll hide you in the cleft of a rock and I'll cause my goodness to pass before you. And when it's safe, when the coast is clear, when, when my glory is, I'll let you come out and you can get just the back of my glory, just the glimmer, just a glimpse of my glory. And so God does this, and Moses hides in the rock, and he comes out, and he sees just the glimpse and the glimmer of the glory. And as he's doing this, we hear these words from Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Amen keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And commentators in the Gospel of John are universally agreed that this is what John is talking about. When John says that he is full of grace and truth, he's referring way back to this time in Exodus where Moses heard the name of the Lord and he caught just a glimpse and a glimmer of God. And yet Moses didn't see the face of God. Moses didn't, him, he just heard those names and yet he didn't see all of who God was. And the contrast here is that Jesus did that Jesus did, that he is full of grace and truth. In fact, in verse 18, we're told that the word has made him known. It's a Greek, Greek word, exegeted him. That he is, if you know exegesis, just means interpretation. The son has interpreted the father's glory, translated the father's glory into human flesh. That the son has revealed the father, that thing that Moses was forbidden from seeing, that thing that Moses was not allowed to see, that he has made, the son has made that known. And so the question is, how does the Son make known the glory of God in the Gospel of John? How does the Son do that? Because John is just setting us up here for what he's going to unfold. Well, in the Gospel of John, 
you see that there's very clear build of suspense. And so I'll read some of these passages for you so you can get a sense for how John is building suspense. In John 2, 4, Jesus said to her, speaking to his mother, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And again, in John 4, 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And again, in 4.23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Again, in 5.25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. In chapter 5, verse 28, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice in 730. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. In chapter 8, verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And Jesus said in chapter 12, 23, the hour has come. So the hour is building and the building and building. And Jesus says, the hour has come, the hour is here the, for the Son of Man to be glorified, to show his glory. And yet Jesus speaks with this with some trepidation in 1227. Now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. We see this building up throughout the Holy Week. It says in 13, 1 and 2, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In John 16, 21, Jesus says, When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has come into the world. 16, 25, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. 1632, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it is come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And John 17, 1 through 5, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So we see that this tension of when is the glory going to be revealed? When is his hour coming is building throughout the gospel of John. And as we get closer and closer to the climax of the gospel, we see that there's these references to transition for no longer as you say, the hour is coming, but he starts to say the hour has come. Well, what is that hour? When does the glory of God shine the brightest in the gospel of John? It's in Jesus' last hours. And it ends with this statement. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. 
and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. When does Jesus reveal the glory of God in the Gospel of John? When does the glory of God shine the brightest in the face of Christ? It's in the hour where he was crucified for you and me. When he was on that hill. When we think of glory, we think of glitz and glamour and gold and silver and fame. But when Christ showed his glory, it was with blood and spittle and water flowing. It was heaped on under the shame of men. It was in the spear that pierced his side. When, when Moses saw the glory of God, he saw that the glory of God shone and it was too beautiful to even put into words and even then he didn't get the full glimpse and yet you and I get the full glimpse in the face of Christ. Where does God show his glory the brightest? It's in that moment where our salvation was secured, where our sins were forgiven, where the Lamb of God did take away the sins of the world. John the Baptist saw that that hour was coming and Moses knew that hour would come one day and John the writer has seen when that hour built and you and I have seen that through the scriptures and the glory of God comes because Christ died. It's it's not in the high things of this world, it's in the low things of this world. It's not when, when, when Christ to our earthly senses seems to be the, the most magnified, it's when he seems to be the most God forsaken. You and I would think that when Jesus says it is finished, that he still has a lot to do. And yet the hour of his glory was that moment where he felt the wrath of God for you and I, and he lifted up his head and he gave up his spirit. When does the glory of God shine the brightest? Where is the glory of God the most clear? It's on Mount Calvary. It's on Mount Calvary on a hill far away. When John says in John 1, we have seen his glory, that's what he's talking about. That he saw his glory, not in the glitz and the glamour and the fame of this world, but when the Son of God took our place on that tree. The witnesses have abundantly told us that the Father shows his glory through his crucified Son. That's where the glory is. If you are looking for the glory this morning, if you are looking for the transcendent, if you are looking for the unearthly and the supernatural, if you are looking for that that thing that is spiritual, look no farther than Golgotha. Look no farther than when Christ, by the eternal Spirit, offered up himself as our once-for-all sacrifice. That's where the glory of God shines the brightest in the Gospel of John. So let me apply this. Let me apply this for us today. Number one, we need to reorient what we think the glory of God might mean. Uh, One of my my favorite C.S. Lewis books is that that book, Till We Have Faces. How many of you have ever read that book? Oh, it's a glorious book. Oh, such a good book. My favorite C.S. Lewis book. In, in that book, 
uh, there's this story about this queen. And this queen has this temple in her land. And she goes in the temple. And in the center of this temple, there's just this ugly, godforsaken, brutal rock. And that's where everyone will come to and offer sacrifices and pray to. And the queen just can't stand this thing. It's just hideous. It's an eyesore. It looks like a two-year-old made it at an art fair. And so she decides that she's going to bring in all the artists from all around the world, that she's going to bring in the best artisans. She brings in, she brings in all these brilliant people, and they put together this, this new statue to be this new idol for the land. And so this, this new statue is beautiful, and it's, it's all primmed up, and, and all these wealthy and these powerful people come before it, and they bring their prayers, and they make a big hullabaloo about bringing all of their fame to this statue. But then the queen looks to the side of the room where she's left the, the ugly old idol. And this little maidservant, doesn't have a penny to her name, just wearing rags, comes and she prays before that idol. And then she looks up and her face is joyful and she goes to leave. And the queen, this doesn't make any sense. Why would anyone go to that old, ugly thing? You have to go to the, the new statue, the, the one that's all beautiful. And so she pulls aside this maidservant. And she says, you know, things have changed here, right? You can go to the new thing. You don't, you don't have to keep going there. And, and this, this maidservant says, oh, no, no, you don't understand. That new, beautiful statue, that would never receive my prayers. I could never pray to that God. That God would never care about me. I can only go to that ugly, God-forsaken rock because that's my condition. Christians, if you want to see the glory of God, it means that you have to recognize God came and showed his glory in a way that was fit for us. That's why uh, the Apostle Paul calls it the scandal of the cross. The scandal of the cross. It's a stumbling block. It's, it's a scandal and it's a saving scandal. We have to reorient our minds about what it means to see the glory of God. I think this means that we have to be willing to recognize that that's what our sins deserved. That each one of us, we deserve to be we deserve to be crucified. We deserve what Christ got, and yet God shows His glory in saving you and in saving me. Where God chooses to show his glory the brightest and to show his glory the, the most impressively is on the day that is darkest. It is when the time has come to pay the bill. And God chose to shine his glory in saving you and in saving me. Which means, dear Christians, you and I should take joy. We should take joy in the sacrifice of Christ. Because that is how God chose to glorify himself in saving me and saving you and saving us. That's where God shines his glory the brightest is in the sacrifice of Christ. I think it's worth saying as well that when we read through the Old Testament, we should read through the Old Testament like John does. We should see that all the Old Testament, we should read it on its own terms, certainly, but we should see how it's building up the suspense until that moment, that hour when Christ himself has come. I also believe that we should take John the Baptist cue, and we should live our whole lives as witnesses to this glorious day. That 
all of us are called to be witnesses of the glory of Christ. Let me give you three or four ways that that works. Number one, I think that that means that we need to be humble. The Lord is just showing me that all over the place in the Gospel of John. I think that means that we need to be humble. We need to no longer insist upon our own ways. We, know, we need to no longer be the stars of our own story. That we need to be humble. For me, this is Matt speaking, that means I need to be less critical. Because when I'm critical, I'm putting others down to puff myself up. And so for me, for, for Matt, that means that I need to be more about the glory of Christ than I am about my own successes. Um, so it means that we need to be proud. Uh, I, I believe that it also means that we need to live our lives in such a way that they demand the question, where is the, what, what, what gives? Where have you seen the glory? You, you know how when Moses went into the tent and he'd come out and his face would be shining? When you and I meet with Jesus, our hearts should be shining. There's, that it should radiate onto us. We should have a, a, a chemical burn from beholding the glory of Christ. You know, how many of us, when, we're, when we leave this place, we go out unchanged? As if we hadn't seen the glory. To see the glory means that we should live our whole lives, which, which is going to transform every part of our life from how we conduct ourselves in marriage to how we parent our children to how we conduct ourselves at work, that we should do, as the Apostle Paul says, all things, whatever you do, to the glory of God. All things, whether you're a teacher or a doctor or you work construction or you're a stay-at-home mother, whatever you do, all things should be done to the glory of God, not to the glory of ourselves. Number three. I would say that the way that this witness works its way out, the way that this witness works its way out is by you and I telling other people about Jesus. I think that what this means, if you and I have really seen the glory, shouldn't we want to share it with other people? And it doesn't have to be doesn't have to be complex. You don't have to have all your answers in a row. You don't have to like memorize an apologetics book. Here's what you say. I've seen the glory. And they say, what glory? You say, why don't you come and see? Talk more about that next week. It, you don't have to have a, a perfect thought out presentation. You just say, I've seen the glory. I know you have all, but I've seen him and he's real. And I want you to see him too. That's all that it means to share the gospel is to tell other people about the glory. Christians, the good news of the gospel is that on the darkest day, God's glory shone the brightest. That God chose to show his glory not in condemning and in judging us, even though we definitely deserved it, but in condemning and judging his own son. And that is something worth singing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. You chose to show this glory not by exalting yourself, not by putting our face in our own sin, not by humiliating us, not by shaming us, but by taking that humiliation, that shame upon yourself and your son. Father, we thank you that you have seen fit to show us the glory Father, we pray, we want to be good witnesses for the glory of God. 
we want to be good at telling other people about the gospel, and sometimes it is so hard. But Father, I pray that when we've seen the glory, we would not leave unchanged. That to see him would profoundly change us and mold us and break us and that his glory would shine through us. Father, I pray for this, dear people. Pray that you would help us as we go out into all of our different workplaces, to all of our different families, to all of our different neighborhoods and cities and towns, that we would go with songs of glory on our lips. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen.